The Justice Department has announced new guidelines aimed at destroying prejudices against people who are painfully thin physically but identify as obese. Formerly known as anorexics, these Americans are now referred to more correctly as trans fats, though not to be confused with the trans fats found in donuts, which need no help from the Justice Department because we all agree they're absolutely awesome. The Justice Department guidelines provide that states may no longer require trans fat persons to buy clothes that fit or to walk through a turnstile that a 300-pound person would normally get stuck in. Furthermore, anyone who calls a trans fat skinny or summons an ambulance when she passes out from malnutrition or attempts to perform CPR when she dies of starvation can be fined upward of $250,000 for violating the constitutional restriction against being a big meanie. Likewise, if a trans fat person who looks like a death camp victim should stick her fingers down her throat in an attempt to make herself vomit up a piece of cheese she swears she only meant to suck on for a moment but accidentally swallowed, observers will be required to remark, I see your point, there sure are a lot of calories in cheese. Blandly sinister Attorney General Loretta Lynch told reporters, quote, I grew up under Jim Crow laws, and therefore I will not rest until every freakish nutball in America has been used to distract the public from the catastrophic failures of the Obama administration. There are laws against mistreating people of the trans fat persuasion, and yes, okay, I made those laws up in my imagination, but that's how our Constitution works, in my imagination, unquote. The blandly sinister Lynch went on to speak with touching emotion about the American history of abuses against trans fat people as when they were sent to psychiatrists as if they suffered from some kind of mental disorder and even force-fed to keep them from starving themselves to death as if they suffered from some kind of mental disorder. President Barack Obama approved of the Justice Department's new crusade, saying at a press conference, quote, I've screwed up our health care system beyond repair, I've engulfed the Middle East in flames, and I've put what should have been a recovering economy on a path to 0% growth. But if I can trespass on the people's rights to govern themselves in order to support just one completely made-up minority, I'll have given the news media cover to go on kissing my black ass till long after I'm dead, unquote. The presidential press conference ended on a light note when the president asked the assembled reporters, did I just say that out loud? And the laughing reporters responded, say what, Mr. President? We didn't hear a thing. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. <laughs> That's just mean, I know. I'm being mean to trans fat persons. This is the all-sex show. We're going to talk about nothing but sex, but first, <laughs> but first, it's, yeah, yay, good sex, but unfortunately, it's abuse of sex, so boo, abuse of sex. Yeah, it's not, not so much fun. But before we do that, I know I keep bothering you about subscribing so you can see stuff, but also so you can participate tomorrow. We will do the mailbag yet again, answering all your questions with diagrams, and we'll help float, you know, fly in professors to explain things to you. <laughs> not going to do any of that. But we will answer your mail-in questions. And you can see the show. So you could see, for instance, this meme that we're going to put up that it was tweeted to me. This is a, apparently a famous meme. And I will describe it for those of you who are too damn cheap to subscribe for free. You get it for free for 30 days, but you're too cheap even for that. So this is a meme. It shows a dog. It says basically how I'm handling life right now. It shows a dog having a cup of coffee in a burning house. That's the first frame. And the second frame is a dog having a cup of coffee in a burning house saying, this is fine. And yesterday, I was tweeted this from Scott Bitts in Wisconsin, who said the first frame is me after listening to the Ben Shapiro show, and the second frame is me after listening to the Andrew Clayton show. So he's still sitting in the burning house, but after listening to me, he thinks, this is fine. <laughs> so this, now, I will, I will say... 
I'll segue from that into into going back to something I was talking about last week in last week's mailbag about the tragic point of view and why the tragic point of view sounds sad but actually makes you kind of jolly because life is tragic and when you live according to re realistic expectations you're happier you know when you're I think a lot of and I was also talking about this yesterday I think a lot of America's problems stem from not accepting the tragic nature of certain occurrences. You know, F. Scott Fitzgerald said that Americans want, to, want their tragedies with a happy ending. And I think that, that you know, there's a lot of truth to that. <clears throat> and I think that part of what we're seeing, for one thing, I think George W. Bush's reaction to 9-11, which I now regard as, a, as largely an error, and I, I understood the logic of it, I appreciated the logic of it, I was sorry he never could explain the logic of it because he was so inarticulate, but basically what he said is we have supported these strongmen abusive governments and these strongmen abusive governments have supported this radical Islam to keep the people satisfied with religion while they you know, stole all the money from the oil and this has got to stop and we're now going to go around replacing governments and spreading freedom starting with Iraq basically. And that made a lot of sense, but it was so ambitious. It was so ambitious and then very badly done in Iraq. It just took him too long to send enough people to, to do what had to be done. <clears throat> By the time he did it, the left had been able to use that in their unpatriotic way to shoot down, once again, what they considered conservative governance, even though George W. Bush was not a conservative, but still, to shoot down the GOP and got elected this incompetent anti-American president who has now driven us to the point where we are out of our minds. We are basically so divided that we're looking at crazy people like Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders as our next president. Very similar to what's happening in Austria, and I'll get back to that later at the end of the show because it's important. But but my point is just that a lot of this, <clears throat> a lot of the reactions we're seeing to Trump are the failure of conservatives to accept the tragic fact that we have lost this election. And one of those reactions, the reaction I talked about yesterday, was the reaction of conservatives fighting with each other. But the other thing is this invasion of the body snatchers thing, where people start out saying, well, look, I think Trump is the second worst thing that could happen, so I'm going to vote for him, which I respect, to suddenly this kind of wild enthusiasm for a guy who violates all of our principles, our principles about honesty, our principles about morality, and, and basically our principle, our, most importantly probably, our principles about big government, because we don't really know what his reactions to anything are, and he's been a lifelong Democrat, a lifelong supporter of Democrats, a lifelong contributor to Democrats, and so a lot of wild enthusiasm for this guy on the part of conservatives is just, makes no sense, it's illogical. And so I think it's kind of a reaction to the fact that we don't want to accept that we've lost this election. The one person I exempt, by the way, is Ann Coulter. Ann Coulter hates Mexicans coming into the country so much that she supported Trump from the very beginning. It's in keeping with her philosophy, although not in keeping with some of her more conservative ideas. I thought she was more of a by-the-book conservative. But still, she got on the, the Trump train early. This is what she believes, and uh, I think she's wrong, but you know, I, I don't think she's being dishonest. Okay. Now, we have to talk about, however, no matter what I think about Trump, the media, you know, in the old days when they wanted to uh, film a, an actress, a movie star actress who had gotten past her prime and she had started to, started to look, she wasn't the ingenue anymore, they would put Vaseline on the camera lens and it would soften the view of her so she still looked like the young ingenue she used to be. That is what the media is 
to Donald Trump. It is Vaseline on the lens. When you look at Donald Trump through the lens of the media, he looks so much better than he does when you just look at him as a compare him to, say, your principles. When you hold him up to your principles, he looks terrible. When you hold him up next to the media, it's, it's amazing how good he looks. He put out an ad yesterday about Hillary Clinton, attacking Hillary Clinton on Bill Clinton's abuse of women and Hillary Clinton's basic acceptance of that abuse. Here's the ad. I was very nervous. No woman should be subjected to it. But it you, was an assault. It starts to uh, bite on my top there and I try to pull away from him. <laughs> The cut line is, here we go again. <laughs> Do you want these people back in the White House? Those were some of the women that accused Bill Clinton of abusing them, and Hillary Clinton laughing, and a picture of Bill Clinton smoking a big cigar, okay? So that reminds us of what he did with Monica Lewinsky in the Oval Office. Well, the press is shocked. The press is shocked that he would go there, you know, that, that, that somehow this is off base. And it's not just the left-wing press, but let's start with the left-wing press. Chris Cuomo, and as I keep saying, nobody named Cuomo should be call himself a journalist, okay? He's just a Democrat hack, you know, fronting for the Democrat Party on Democrat fronting CNN. So Chris Cuomo goes to Michael Cohen, the, a spokesman for Trump, and says, isn't this bad for Trump? I mean, it's so lovely of Chris to worry about Donald Trump's reputation. Isn't this bad for Trump? Here's, here's this exchange. Isn't that bad for Donald Trump? Why? Why is it bad for, why is it bad for Mr. Trump? What he's doing is he's exposing not just Bill Clinton for what he was and what he had done, but it's the same as it relates to Hillary. She Mr. Trump as being a sexist, misogynist, and that's inaccurate. Donald Trump's not any of those things. And again, what they're trying to do is to portray him as such so that they can end up turning the women against Mr. Trump when, in fact, the women seem to be turning against Hillary Clinton for being the enabler-in-chief. If you are not a sexist, what you usually say is, I'm not a sexist. Here's all the things that prove that I'm not here, all the beautiful things, the beautiful women in Which my Mr. life. Which Mr. Trump has done right. many you times. You don't turn around and say, actually, you're the sexist. You call me a sexist, I call you a sexist. Well, Seems well, juvenile. Except what she's doing is she's deflecting. The issue is they're really the, she's the enabler-in-chief, and he happens to be the sexist. So instead, she needs to win the women's vote. That's what she needs. She's certainly not going to win the men's vote. I love, I love Cuomo explaining to him what you do if somebody calls you a sexist. In other words, what he, what he is saying is if somebody calls you a sexist, you immediately should become defensive and try and defend yourself because this is the, this is the playbook. What's the matter? Trump is messing up the playbook. The playbook is we accuse you and you try to defend yourself uselessly and that takes over the news cycle. And Trump is going, how about this? How about you attack me and I crush you? How would that be? You know, and, good, and at least, you know, the one good thing I will say, at least chivalry isn't dead. At least, you know, Chris Cuomo is running to the defense of Hillary Clinton, a, la a lady in distress, okay? So at least chivalry isn't dead. But not just Chris Cuomo. Bill O'Reilly doesn't just think it's bad for Trump. He thinks it's bad for the entire reputation of America. Listen to this. I, know, I understand what you're trying to do here is inhibit Mrs. Clinton from attacking you personally by saying, if you play that game, then I can come back ten times harder. I, I understand that. Uh, but is you know that it makes the country look bad abroad and things like that. That's what worries me. I mean, I, I understand the Clinton attack machine. I got it. And I think it has to be dealt with somewhat. But I think maybe caution. Well, I don't like doing that. 
I don't like doing that, but I have no choice. When she hits me on things, I just have no choice. So you have to do it. It's unfair. And you know, they're dirty players. They've been dirty players historically. And I have to fight back the way I have to fight back. So what is Bill O'Reilly talking about? Why are these why are these media experts telling Donald Trump what he should be doing when everything Donald Trump does works? You know, why? What is this thing? You know, isn't this bad for you? You mean because my poll numbers keep going up because I just stole the, the Republican nomination from 17 guys who the, you know, every every single one of which the establishment wanted more than me. You know, like, <laughs> and you're telling me why I shouldn't be doing what I do. I don't even understand what this is. You know, I, why Bill O'Reilly suddenly is worried about the reputation of our nation. Well, let's talk about this for a minute. First of all, the left is going nuts. The New York Times, you know, I always call the New York Times former newspaper. And the reason I do that is because it used to be a great newspaper. It actually used to be a great newspaper. Republicans always felt the New York Times was too liberal because the editorial page was liberal. But in fact, the front page used to be pretty straightforward. Whenever they would take studies of it, it was right down the line. But what the left always does is the left is like some kind of hideous horror movie worm that eats out the innards of respected institutions and fills and turns them into these zombies that still look like the respected institution on the outside, but inside are just now this kind of dead, living dead representative of the Democrat Party. So that's what's happened to the New York Times. That's what happened to most of our universities. A lot of these universities, Yale, Harvard, these used to be great universities. And in those universities, there's still pockets of greatness. But the left has eaten them out from within until they're just zombie universities, really representing this soul-dead creature inside them of, of Democrat you know, governance. And they've done this to our entertainment industry. The entertainment industry was always a little liberal. Artists were always a little liberal. But it was not just this propaganda machine. You know, you just look at the movies that have come out this year and it's like one transgender gay movie after another and I don't even I don't even care about those issues, but just make tell me a story for crying out loud. Don't tell me about your superior moral life in Hollywood, please. You know, <laughs> so, so the New York Times, the New York Times now, if you read the New York Times front page, you get the feeling that the editors in the morning, instead of saying, what's the news today, are saying, how can we advance the Democrat agenda? What, you know, because they know that people just glance at the headlines. People, most people do not read a story. How often do you read a news story till from beginning to end? I mean, I try to do it a lot, but I do it more than most people. Most people just go, their eyes travel down the front page. The front page of the New York Times is consistently organized to sell Democrat ideas and to express Democrat anxieties. That's the other thing. You always know what the Times is worried about by what they put on the front page. So what's on the front page today? Kenneth Starr, this is the headline, Kenneth Starr, who tried to bury Bill Clinton, now only praises him. Now, Kenneth Starr, you'll remember, was the special prosecutor who was brought in to find out about Hillary Clinton and Monica Lewinsky and his um, his perjury, the perjury that Clinton committed, and he was supposed to investigate him, all right? So he says, here's the the story. An unlikely voice recently bemoaned the decline of civility in presidential politics, warned that deep anger was fueling an almost radical populism, and sang the praises of former President Bill Clinton. The voice was that of Kenneth W. Starr, the former Whitewater Independent Counsel. That's right, he was brought in, I forgot, he was brought in to do Whitewater, and then his his investigation, as all independent counsel investigations do, spread out over the, the wrong doing throughout the administration. And he calls, they say, his Javert-like pursuit of Mr. Clinton in the 1990s. Do you know who Javert is? Does anybody remember who? He is from Les Miserables. He's the cop who pursued Jean Valjean for a thousand, four, 
400 pages across the landscape of France for stealing a loaf of bread, right, to feed his family. And Javert was this obsessive cop who pursued him. So the Kenneth W. Starr is being compared to Javert. And he said something nice about Clinton. He said, his genuine empathy for human beings is absolutely clear. It is powerful. It is palpable. And the folks of Arkansas really understood that about him, okay? Now, just to remind you, by the way, that no one ever called Special Prosecutor Patrick Fitzgerald Javert-like. No one on the left, no one at the New York Times ever called Patrick Fitzgerald Javert-like when he went after George W. Bush for the Valerie Plame nonsense, right? That was that nonsense when Valerie Plame's husband accused George W. Bush of getting it wrong that, the, that Iraq, Saddam Hussein, was trying to get his hands on weapons of mass destruction, material to make weapons of mass destruction. George W. Bush was right. Joseph Wilson was wrong. So the press turned the story on its head to be about Valerie Plame, Wilson's wife, and how somebody had named her in the press. And she was a CIA agent, and this needed a big investigation. And Bush, like an idiot, fell for it and appointed a special prosecutor who then went nuts and ultimately wound up indicting <laughs> Scooter Lippy, who had nothing to do with anything. Nobody ever called him Javert, but Kenneth Starr is Javert because he investigated Bill Clinton. So inside the paper, David Brooks, David Brooks, who is a hologram of elitism, there is no David Brooks anymore. David Brooks was brought in to be this conservative commentator on the op-ed page. He is now just a spokesman for elitist New York Times opinion. He is, he is possibly, I mean, if there, were, if there were no other, if the rest of the columnists at the New York Times weren't so bad, David Brooks would be the worst columnist in America. He is just an empty shell of any kind of political commentary. Why is Clinton disliked? That's his column today. Why is Hillary Clinton disliked? He says, I understand why Donald Trump is so unpopular. He earned it the old-fashioned way by being obnoxious, insulting, and offensive. But why is Hillary Clinton so unpopular? And then he gets right to the heart of her unpopularity. He says, I would begin my explanation with this question. Can you tell me what Hillary Clinton does for fun? <laughs> <laughs> you think I'm making this up, but I'm not. Clinton's unpopularity is akin to the unpopularity of a workaholic. Her formal, career-oriented persona puts her in direct contrast with the mores of the social media age, which is intimate, personalist, revealing, trusting, and vulnerable. It puts her in conflict with most people's lived experience. Most Americans feel more vivid and alive outside the work, outside the work experience than within. So, of course, to many, she seems Machiavellian, crafty, power-oriented, untrustworthy. Okay, nothing. This is unbelievable. I mean, there's nothing about the lies and the flip-flopping, the alleged but very probable influence peddling to Corning Glass when she was a Senate, when she was a U.S. senator, to the Russians selling uranium, there are uranium supplies when she was Secretary of State, nothing about her hiding her emails, nothing about her wiping her servers, nothing about the Benghazi dead where she provably stood in front of the coffins and lied to the parents of the Benghazi dead and lied about the causes of their death. I mean, that alone, that alone would make her detestable. I mean, never mind illegal or legal. That just is detestable. And that's proved. You don't need a smoking gun for that. The gun is smoking away. You know, what is this guy talking about? But let's go back. Let us let us go back and see if Donald Trump is in the right or wrong to put out this ad. If Okay, let's go back and look at this. First, let's just start with Juanita Broderick. I mean, this is the woman who very plausibly accused Bill Clinton of rape. She was a nursing home administrator in Arkansas. She was a volunteer and supporter for Bill Clinton's gubernatorial campaign in 1978. She was supposed he Clinton was supposed to meet her in a coffee shop in her hotel. 
to discuss his campaign and her volunteering for his campaign, he maneuvered his way into her hotel room. He said, I, I want to avoid the press, so I'll meet you in your hotel room. This is what happened next. This is the first Juanita Broderick cut. And he tries to kiss me again. And the second time he tries to kiss me, he starts biting on my lip. Just a minute. He starts to uh, bite on my top lip, and I try to pull away from him. And then he forces me down on the bed. And I just was very frightened. And I tried to get away from him, and I told him no. And I didn't want this to happen. But he wouldn't listen to me. All right, very upsetting stuff. Yeah I, yeah, I know. It's like it's like everybody in the room is moved, including me. Very, very upsetting stuff. Now, after that, at a meeting, Hillary Clinton and Bill come into a meeting where Juanita Broderick is, is standing, and she hasn't yet said anything about this. Okay, she hasn't said that. Here's her description of this to a much younger Sean Hannity. The minute they came in the door, I'm standing over in the living room area, and I see them come through the kitchen area, and I see her going up to someone and they're pointing at me and I see him go the opposite direction I assumed when they came in if I was still there that he might come up and say something but she made her way just as quick as she could to me and what happened well I got very almost got nauseous when she came over to me and she came over to me took a hold of my hand and said I've heard so much about you and I've been dying to meet you, or been wanting to meet you, I can't, this is paraphrasing right now. And she said, I just want you to know how much that Bill and I appreciate what you do for him. And I said, well, thank you. And I started to turn and walk away. This woman, this little, little soft-spoken, pardon me for the phrase, dowdy woman, that was seemed very unassertive, took a hold of my hand and squeezed it and said, do you understand everything that you do? I could have passed out at that moment. So what she's saying is that Hillary Clinton came up, squeezed her hand and said, we appreciate everything that you do. And she took this as a threat. But, we, you know, that's, that's a nonverbal communication. But we don't have to take her word for it. Here is Hillary Clinton on her famous... Uh, Matt Lauer interview where she talked about how this all these accusations that Bill was having an affair with Monica Lewinsky were uh, the result of the vast right-wing conspiracy. Forgive the poor sound quality of this bite, but try to listen to what Lauer asks her and what she responds. If an American had an adulterous liaison in the White House and lied to cover it up, should the American people ask for his resignation? Well, they should certainly be concerned about it. Should they ask for his resignation? Well, they... If all that were proven true, I think that would be a very serious offense. That is not going to be proven true. I think we're going to find some other things. And I think that when all of this is put into context and we really look at their motivations, backgrounds, look at their past behavior, some folks are going to have a lot to answer for. 
Okay, so Lauer asks her, just in case you couldn't hear it, he says, if, if it's proved true that he basically was a sexual predator on this woman young enough to be his daughter, in using his, the tremendous power he had on a woman with no power to seduce her into this relationship, should we ask him to resign? And this is what she says. This is what Hillary says on national TV. I think we're going to find some other things. I think that when all of this is put into context and we really look at the people involved here, meaning the women, look at their motivations and look at their backgrounds, look at their past behavior, some folks are going to have a lot to answer for. Okay, so she's, t she's threatening the women on national TV. She's telling them, we're coming after you. And if that's not specific enough, two weeks later, this is from Gateway Pundit, less than two weeks later on February 8th, Former high-level Clinton White House operative George Stephanopoulos, who we all know is the ABC head of the ABC News now, right, George Sokolopoulos, he goes on this week and he says that the Clinton administration is, was threatening to go scorched earth on Clinton's accusers, okay? Sam Donaldson says to him, says to George Stephanopoulos, we know what the White House tactics are. I mean, they have been almost open about it. Attack the press, and perhaps with good reason, attack the independent counsel, perhaps for some good reason, and stonewall on the central issue, which is the President of the United States. If he has nothing to hide, why is he hiding? As Stephanopoulos says, I agree with that. There's a different long-term strategy, strategy, which I think would be far more explosive. White House allies are already starting to whisper about what I'll call the Ellen Romach strategy. Now, Ellen Romach was an East German Soviet spy who had sex with JFK, because JFK, I don't think there were three women in the United States who didn't sleep with JFK. When Republicans start to say, hey, this guy is sleeping with a Russian spy, maybe we should say something. Bobby Kennedy had J. Edgar Hoover go to Congress and say, listen, boys, because J. Edgar Hoover famously spied on everybody and had dope on everybody. He said, listen, boys, you go after JFK and everything that you have done sexually is on the table. We are going to shut you down. So he's talking about intimidation. They are talking about intimidating these women. This Hillary Clinton was part of this. What Trump is saying is completely on the table. Hillary Clinton is running on the 90s. She's running on, you know, we're going to bring back the Clinton economy. And what Trump is saying is she's also going to bring back the fact that she's a dishonest person who protect, not only protected, you know, not only lived with a predator, but protected him. She took obvious steps. Catherine, Kathleen, Willie, who was molested, she, who said she was molested by Bill in the Oval Office, said Hillary Clinton is the war on women, okay? Hillary Clinton is the war on women because she feels that her life was virtually destroyed. All right. Now, all this matters for a lot of reasons. I mean, obviously, rape is a, a, hein a heinous crime, which basically is a violation not just of body but of soul. But we talked yesterday about what was happening in Austria, okay? Similar to here, right? The, the main parties are shunted out of the, of the uh, election, and a far left and a far right guy compete. They were deadlocked when we were talking yesterday. Now it turns out that the left wing candidate won the election. Right? The left wing candidate won the election against Norbert Hofer, who was on a far right anti-immigrant uh, right wing guy. Well, of course, the press is elated. The press, you know, they, oh, my gosh, Austria has dodged a bullet. We don't. Have, but listen to this statistic for a minute. All right. Norbert Hoffer's political base is to be found among the Arbeitern, the working class, where 72% of voters, 72% of the working class, turned to Hoffer compared to 5% for his rival, okay, which is kind of similar to what's happening with Trump, right? All these guys are working class people who are supporting him. 
think about what the left is. Think about what the left means, right? The left is the workers' party. The left is the socialist workers' party, is the party of the workers. The workers don't want them. Why? Because their policies suck for workers, you know? All, everything they do is good for big business. Everything the left does is good for big business. Regulation, uh, you know, uh, crony capitalism, all of it's great for big business. Even feminism, which doubles the workforce and means they can half wages, they can cut wages, you know, all of it is good for big business. It screws the worker. The left has abandoned the worker, so then what is their reason for being? Their only reason for being is to seduce minorities the way they used to seduce the workers, to tell minorities they're going to do for them what they failed to do for the workers. And among those minorities are women. Why women, how women became a minority beats me. But somehow women are oppressed, you know, American women, possibly the least oppressed group of people on the face of the planet, but suddenly they've been convinced by the left they're oppressed. They're selling them the same bill of goods they sold the workers until the workers caught on. The workers caught on. So all they have is you are a victim. That's all they have left. And that's why it matters. And that's why Donald Trump is completely on the right, in the right, to go after them with their abuse of the very people they think are their base. So there's for Donald Trump. This is me defending Donald Trump. I thought I would never, I'd never see it, but there it is. All right. Stuff I like. Stuff I like, I really wanted this week to talk about ancient, you know, classical works that are, are readable. Stuff that you should read. It's good to read because people get afraid of classical. They think, oh, it's the Greeks. It's hard. It's, you know, it's in translation and all this stuff. But some of this stuff is our foundational documents in the same way that our Constitution and Declaration are foundational documents. This is where everything we think of comes from. And one of the most important ones is it's called the Apology of Plato. But it's really, that's from the Greek word apologia, which means defense. And it is the speech that Socrates, the philosopher, was supposed to have made at his trial when he was being tried for corrupting the youth and disrespecting the gods. Because what Socrates would do is he would go around the agora and he would come up to young people and he would challenge their ideas. And he would start to question them and show them how their ideas didn't make any sense. And he was put on trial for this. And ultimately, he was... Uh, executed. He was given hemlock to drink. He had to drink the hemlock. And so this is his speech that he's supposed to have made before, in defense of himself. And then while they were, after they had found him guilty, and then after they had sentenced him to death. These are the three speeches that he made. It is very readable. It's really exciting. And it's so much of our foundational. You know, there are two pillars of Western society, Jesus and Socrates, or Jesus and Plato Socrates, we'll call him. Both of them were put to death for blasphemy. Both of them were judicially murdered for blasphemy. And so when people start to talk about, like Muslims in the UN say there should be laws against blasphemy, free speech should end with blasphemy, we know better. And we know better because of documents like this. Also, this is where we really start to get the idea that you can question everything, that reason, you can reason about everything. And all these little snowflakes on campus who want safe spaces every time Ben comes and talks to them have to run and hide and stick their head under the pillow every time uh, the evil Shapiro comes to town. They're killing Socrates all over again because so that's what Socrates did. He questioned their most precious assumptions. This is, it's a great read. It's a moving read. It's a read of, it's a story of one of the great men of history being judicially executed and handling it with a dignity, honor, and philosophy that all of us might wish to have. The, ap the Apology of Plato, the Apologia, it's sometimes called. Find a good translation of it. Read this sort of introductory part that'll tell you exactly what's going on. It's a, it's a terrific read, and it'll tell you a lot about where we come from and how we think. That's it. That's it. Was that enough sex? 
I, I don't know. I wish we could have just had fun sex, but it's, you know, it's the best, best sex I could get my hands on. Anyway, we'll be back tomorrow. Tomorrow's the mailbag. So send in your questions and we will answer them all or a few of them or one or something. We'll do whatever we can do. I'm Andrew Clavin. This is The Andrew Clavin Show. Come back tomorrow. The building is burning, but it's fine.